So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. Oh, hey, Michael. Oh, hey, Taylor. How's it going? Oh, it's going. 2021. First time we've recorded this year. Um, first time we've seen each other in quite some time. First time we've got some beer in our hand. And we're doing something we also don't do very often, which is best of the year. We had to take a couple weeks off just in preparation for this year-end recap, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that we are both still shamefully under... Um, caught up with each other's lists i know that your classic discoveries i mostly not watched um most of your documentaries i haven't watched if i'm recalling correctly um yeah we, we've definitely got um more homework than ever yeah for me i don't know if this is a function of theaters being closed but it seems like this year people kind of Everyone seemed to kind of go their own directions in a way because you're sitting at home. It's just as easy to put on an old movie as it is a new movie. I think that encouraged maybe a little more variety than usual. Yes. Um, I would still say that per usual, the folks that are including titles that aren't from close to this year are the eccentrics um, in any other year, i.e. Peter Labuza mm. and his um, not only not being a top 10 list, but doing dual entries from like post 2000s, pre 19, uh, like 90 ish. Yeah, entries. I have seen all kinds of parameters and criteria for list making this year. Yes. Did you have anything in particular, any guiding principle or was it just it feels right? Not only does it feel right, but is it sincere? Hmm. Um, I tried to make my list as sincere a list as it could be. It's not trying to guess what other people's top tens are. It's not trying to, it's just, this is the emotional experience I had with this project. I say project because there's going to be some limited series in here. Um, my top film is not going to break 80 minutes. It's not going to break 75 minutes. Mm. Um, and then I'm going to have a number three that's, you know, in the 300 minute range. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, this is a a weird list type of a year, but I think it's a good precedent moving forward um, to kind of normalize what we've talked about previously, especially in these discussions of the best of the year with the lens format medium that Keith Ulick's kind of pushed and coined um, more than ever being the center stage of telling stories, sometimes uh, stories told in four parts in a limited series Sometimes a story is a film that's under 75 minutes. Sometimes, um, in the case of Host, which I don't think we'll talk about today, uh, one of the most renowned feature films of the year was 56 minutes. Mm. So um, this year more than ever, I think it's good to reevaluate those distinctions, especially in a year that uh, unfortunately wasn't very good for film comparatively Mm. to um, the years that you and I have gotten to cover so far. Yeah. Uh, Anything on your list or not on your list that might otherwise would be, but it just didn't make sense given the the way the year shook out based on release dates or whatever? Well, there's 
two I, I have two different lists. Uh, the one that I'm going to talk about today is just my personal top ten. But there is a top ten that I shared with you that is just feature films. And that top ten has your number two film on it. Um, whereas I won't mm. have your number two on this list, unfortunately. Um, but there, I considered it for so many categories, especially Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress. Um, so, yeah, I guess more than anything, what I'm disappointed about is that we're not just doing a top 10 directorial debuts episode. Because I think from 1 to 10, you've got a lot stronger entries in filmmaking and directorial debuts than you do almost in anything else. Mm. Makes sense. Well, I'll maybe just quickly outline the couple parameters I did use for my own list to try to make sense of the year. It's a little different from the to halfway point. To make sense of it, at least. Basically, yeah. Um, like there are titles we talked about on the show this year through festivals um, that I'm going to save for 2021 when those distributors actually put out those movies. They're also Fingers ones. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. That's correct. Um, and then anything that came out or that premiered more than a couple years ago, like at the halfway point, I had a couple of Hong Sang Soo movies on there. Um, Question, which, would they still be on there if you weren't doing this rule? Uh, yeah, probably. Okay. But in the long run, I don't think people will look at those movies as 2020 movies. Um, similarly, there was uh, a Sai Ming Liang film called The Hole that was uh, released commercially mm-hmm. for the first time in the U.S. this year. But that was made in, like, 1999. Like, that is definitely about that moment in time. So I'm trying to capture films that, you know, are sort of of this moment in time and have, you know, kind of received their push by the distributors that have, you know, gone to bat for them. Um, So that's my way of trying to sort of establish a playing field, I guess. Also notably, you won't be including Days. Days would yeah, be high up there already for number or for 2021. Same thing with Undine, um, my Mexican pretzel, uh, the woman who ran another Hong Sang Su film. Yeah, I think 2021 already looks great. I already have a top five that I like. I love if the movies are distributed. True, true. And and if everything goes right health wise. So there's there's a lot of in in the way there. I I gonna just pick what I saw because I'm a little bit more skeptical on the luck of these films getting a release that's formal. True. But if I, I, were, I hope you're right. If I were making a list to say, distributors, please pick these up, it would look different than this. Uh, these are the ones that I said that I think people had a reasonable chance to watch at this in this time period um, and that still, still can probably in some fashion or another. Yes. Um, so before we get started with our Wounded Soldiers... I, I thought I'd take this moment to mention two small films. Um, that's a joke because the first one's quite giant. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. But we're not going to talk about Hamilton today. And we're not going to talk about The Vast of Night. And I think that each one of these films, while very different in that Hamilton's essentially televised play distributed on Disney+, Plus, um, it's one of the most exuberant times that I had this year watching the lens format medium the ten dollar found a father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder by being a lot smarter by being a self-starter it was a joy to watch it was um sincere and witty and sarcastic it had all these different flavors it had tragedy joy um you know death rebirth all that good stuff 
but it was also fun and it was fun for the whole family in a way that a lot of stuff that I'm going to get to today is not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that in general, the year kind of was not, I, I think that that's maybe one of the best bigger titles, um, that feels big, sincerely feels big of the year that everybody can watch together and have a really good time. And, um, in a year where maybe that content would have been, more preferable there was a startling lack of it Mm. that is one i still need to see have tried multiple times to sit down and watch it runtime has just worked against its favor but it does uh, get in the way still on my list of items to see and then the second of which is a directorial debut called the vast of night 718 here at wotw we got a sound we'd like to play that seems to be bouncing around the valley tonight yes i have a story that might be helpful I can tell you what's going on. The sound we heard out in the desert. It was coming from thousands of feet higher than anything could fly. They've come here before. They've liked this place. I heard it put really well. It's one of those really small films where it's three in the morning and you can't check the internet. So you just have to believe what you hear. Um, and that, that is a, a wonderful way to sum this up. There's something broadcasting something and you're hearing these radio transmissions and you're trying to figure out what is transmitting them. And you have some of the best long shots of the year, a really keen eye by a director who's making his debut, um, practical effects used very well for a period piece that's set in the fifties. Really eloquent, really streamlined screenplay that just bespeaks a, a future that is um, probably going to be very uh, delightful for us viewers. But also, again, a film that is not only kind of in that weird family-friendly vein, but is really, really good. And there's not been much discussion about. Um, so the first of which, Hamilton, Disney+, Plus, The Vast of Night, is on Prime Video. Both available for streaming. I'll throw out one title that is nowhere on my list or in any of my categories, only because it's a short. I just happen to not include any shorts this year. I kind Grand of. Grand Bazaar. That's a feature. Oh, I would call it? that a medium length feature. Okay. That's 60 minutes. Um, no, it's my favorite short of the year was called Point and Line to Plane by uh, Sophia Bodanowicz. I think is how you pronounce her last name. Um, and it's 10 to 20 minutes if I'm remembering correctly. And it is about a young woman played by, uh, Derek Campbell. I think I might be mispronouncing her first name who has, um, lost her boyfriend or a good friend of hers. And she is sort of trying to find a connection with this, um, person she was deeply close with through the art he loved. It seems impossible that he's gone, so I try to find traces of him in things he loved to do. I look at the words and wonder if there's something there. But Jack is not here. Or here. Title of the short takes its name from a Kandinsky book, if I remember correctly. And... There's some voiceover narration. It's about this young woman engaging with art, trying to connect with this person that she's lost. I thought it was incredibly moving and formally really audacious. Um, it played for about a week on LeCinemaClub.com, um, but uh, focusing mainly on features for the sake of today's conversation. Sounds a little bit like Millennium Actress. There's probably a connection to be made there. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. <clears throat> All right. On to Wounded Soldiers. 
All right, Wounded Soldiers is a category where we identify a a, a film that was either um, critically not particularly well-received or had a rather tough time at the box office. That second parameter is less applicable this year because theaters have been closed for the vast majority of the year. Um, Did you still take that into account at all for your selection or were you just looking? Okay. I've I've got world box office numbers for you. What you got? What is your Wounded Soldier? My Wounded Soldier is a film we will be talking about again later. It is Waiting for the Barbarians, directed by Chiro Guerra. The world box office here was $741,921. We've got a Metacritic rating of 52% and a Rotten Tomatoes rating of 53%. This is a film that was originally a novel written by J.M. Coetzee, and that novel was adapted by the writer himself into a screenplay in which um, I believe the production company had acquired the rights to and multiple directors had been attached. At some point... Um, I believe that both of our bigger stars here, Johnny Depp and, um, geez, now I'm forgetting his name and I love him. Mark Rylance. Mark Rylance, um, noted Steven Spielberg collaborator. Um, they signed on to the film at some point Chiro joined the project. Uh, Robert Pattinson came in and they rounded out the cast and they made what I think is one of the biggest, um, sprawling tales of the year. There is an episode of hysteria about the barbarians. I have orders to obey. I'm speaking of particular situations, situations where I am probing for the truth. Since all is not well here, I expect further measures will be taken. Tells a multifaceted story, has a one of the best effects scenes that I've seen in a giant sandstorm. And it's one of those projects that just makes you lament the fact that you're not able to project these films onto giant screens and watch them in a theater. Because I would have loved to go through that sandstorm scene with a crowd or seen... Um, Mark Rylance near the end with um, a certain tree being um, given a new definition within the town square and just shared that communal experience. Um, So this is my wounded soldier of the year for a lot of reasons, but uh, mainly because I loved it. If my Google search is correct, it looks like it's now streaming on Hulu. Mm -hmm. It is finally available. It is on Hulu. Um, I will mention it later as well. All right. More to come. What is your wounded soldier? All right. My wounded soldier is Sybil. Why did you cast her if you knew that she was supposed to go? I figured it was just a petit Action! I would just have to sit back and watch reality destroy things. A French comedy drama by the female filmmaker Justine Triette. We talked about this on an episode a while back. Um... It is about a psychotherapist who's giving up her profession in therapy to turn to her passion for writing. And just as she does so, she um, finds some inspiration in a uh, highly emotional client she meets and starts lifting um, events out of this client's life and taking them as inspiration for her writing. Um, This was this is currently sitting out of 59% on Metacritic. I don't have the worldwide box office figures. I saw it through a virtual 
uh, virtual cinema release. Um, so I don't think it ever played in theaters in the U.S. But I thought this was a very sexy, funny, um, formally confident uh, comedy drama. Um, it has Adele Exarchopoulos in it, uh, who people probably know most from Blue is the Warmest Color. Um, the lead actress, Virginia Efire, is in Paul Verhoeven's Benedetta next year. I'm excited to see that. Um, yeah, and, and what I like most about it is just that this is a film about messy, flawed women, female uh, characters that I think are really thoughtfully drawn. Um, yeah, I was a little surprised that this uh, flew under the radar. Sybil, I enjoyed it. Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. We recently joined as members, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. Let's get on to our number 10s. All right, what is your number 10? All right, Michael, for the umpteenth time and the last time, we're talking about Kareem Anu's Invisible Life that used to be called the double life of something extravagant that we don't remember the name of when it was originally uh, circulating in theaters in very early February or late January of 2020. Um, I, did we attend the same screening for this one? I don't think we did. I don't think we did. It was around the same time though. Yes. It, and, um, it was at the AMC dine-in, uh, 10. It was, uh, it's in the U district here in Seattle. It's one of the last truly great films that we got to see before everything got shut down. And I can't get this movie out of my head. There's great performances. There's a tapestral, um, view once you're on the other side of it of the story of lives in this time in this place você não sabe a falta que você me faz eu, eu sinto que o Yorgos me ama para sempre <risos> You have this beautifully bookended um, kind of picture that sits in your mind of this film that starts in a dreamscape with these sisters yelling for each other in this beautiful tropical um, oasis. And it ends in this really um, interesting way in which someone's screaming back to you through time, through your daughter, in this very uh, plain looking cityscape. Um, and all the events that happen in between are, are very, um, complex. You have some very unflattering depictions of sexuality, um, especially towards the men. You have these great scenes, um, with Julia Stockler post childbirth, um, and what those difficulties are in being a single working mother and really working hard and then going to try to relax and all the stuff that comes with that. It's really, um... It's just a film that's sticky and is going to stay with me, I think, for a long time. And that's why it's my number 10. That's Invisible Life, now streaming on Prime Video. Definitely one that got caught in between years in that kind of limbo between 2019 or 2020. Like it played festivals in 2019, played in theaters here in Seattle in January, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah, that always 
hurts a film's chances, which is very unfortunate. And in the long run, doesn't matter. And we'll just be remembered as coming out around this time. That's what matters. Yes. Hopefully it will age with uh, more distinction than it was released with. For sure. For sure. Your number 10. I have a tie at number 10 just to try and squeeze a couple. So, dear listeners, in case you're unfamiliar, Michael's what we call a cheater. (laughs) <laughs> it's true, and it is not the only tie that I have on my list. Uh, oh, I'm well aware. Yeah, so prepare yourselves. But that means I'll, I'll be a little more brief about each of these entries. So I have a tie at number 10. The first is Ghost Tropic. Bas Davos, um, who's a Dutch filmmaker. This is a film about a really simply told story about um, a Muslim woman in Belgium who finishes up her job um, as a cleaning woman in this kind of nondescript corporate office building and gets on the train to go home. And she falls asleep on the train, takes it to the end of the line and has to walk home. Um, the city's, it's the middle of the night. Um, and it's sort of this really quiet, uh, minimalistic kind of nocturnal journey where she um, kind of experiences the kindness of strangers is trying to navigate her way through the city. Um, absolutely gorgeous movie shot on 16 millimeter. Um, easily one of the most visually arresting hypnotic movies I've seen all year. Um, just just a, too quiet of a movie, I think, to have ever attracted much of an audience, but I really enjoyed it. Um, where can folks see that one? I think it's probably still streaming in virtual cinemas. Okay. Um, I don't know that it's available for rental yet, but... And, and what cinema did you go through for it? That was through Film at Lincoln Center. Okay. And then my other number, 10, is Pietro Marcello's Martin Eden, an Italian film. It's based on Jack London's novel of the same name. <laughs> Whereas the book is set in San Francisco, Marcello takes the events of the book and places them in this kind of indeterminate time in uh, 20th century Italy. Um, and it is about this um, blue-collar fellow, um, the titular Martin Eden, who develops this voracious appetite for knowledge and an aspiration to become a writer. And it's sort of this rise and fall story about intellectual ambition. Um, It's very romantic, very um, politically and thematically rich and vaguely experimental. There's all this kind of found footage um, and archival footage, I should say, interwoven into the drama that's really compelling. Um, That's Martin Eden. And where can people watch that? That is now available for rental, I believe. Okay. All right, let's get on to our squandered actor, actress, director, producer, writer, whichever one you picked for the year. You should have two entries. Um, Why don't you get us started, Michael, with your first squandered choice? All right, my I have two. My first squandered 
person is Tom Hardy. I think the only... Just to chime in, this is also mine, so why don't we just talk about Tom Hardy here? Oh, fantastic. Because I love Tom Hardy, and I don't know if you know, he had a terrible year. So I'm actually not sure what else he was in other than the film I have particularly in mind, which is Capone, which we talked about way back towards the start of the year. Are you aware of other things he did this year? That's part of the problem. He didn't Mm. do anything. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen Taboo, a film series on FX that's um, somewhere between television and, you know, Twin Peaks, The Return. Mm. Somewhere between, like, actually living in something bigger and being a TV show. Uh, He directed those titles as well as starred in them, co-wrote them with his father. They're incredible. He has the ability to put out a prolific pace. He has the ability to um, convey a project at at an unprecedented level. He's one of those actors that can truly make a project live or die. And Capone is dead. And all I want is more. I would agree. It's directed by Josh Trank, if I'm remembering that director's name correctly. Yeah, which I just thought was... real missed opportunity the film is about uh al capone's the waning days of his life as his body starts to fail him and the uh fbi or cia i don't know it doesn't really matter is trying to uh finally um catch him for whatever you know illegal things he's been doing it does it's the way it does it that's the problem i think there's real potential in that material about aging and mortality um that um, but also the we've hunt seen... and knowing you're being hunted yeah right? yeah like I, um, I just can't not imagine what Scorsese would have done with that yeah totally i mean it, it's the same kind of thematic um ground that i think the irishman kind of covers um but the movie doesn't really know whether it wants to be whether it wants to find humor in capone's you know demise or if it's just gross what's happening happening to his body i don't think that movie really knows what it wants to do with that material a a big waste of potential yeah i so just in what you said there i think that the biggest problem with josh trank's film is that there is not tone management there's Mm -hmm. not clarity there's not deliverance and i think that he thinks that that's probably an artistic choice that is clever but at some point when the reader can't read the book because they don't know what's happening, when the viewer can't enjoy the film because they don't trust anything, um, that does become a problem. There's a way to make something beautiful without letting the viewer or reader know what that thing is. Um, that, that is beautiful. Um, he made something that's not only ugly but holds you at a distance and isn't fun to watch. I would agree. I don't think it really knows what sort of attitude it wants us to take towards Capone and not in like a productively ambiguous way. I don't think it knows whether it wants to f- us to find him, yeah, gross or sympathetic or cruel up until the end, whether or not he's a villain up until the end or a mis- misunderstood figure. Um, I think it's just, just messy. And it looks cheap, unfortunately. I mean, it's, I, I can kind of explain what it is in, in a few words. Capone is a red box film, meaning Mm. they own the distribution rights to the film. That's not good. 
Can you name one good instance of that? I did not even know there were such things as Redbox films. I guess uh-huh. I forgot seeing that uh, label at the start of the movie. Yes, I, I do believe that the other one of note is the um, American Animals, right? That was a uh, movie oh, yeah. pass with Redbox. Yeah. And maybe the third one might be that John Travolta film that, that everybody lamented. Oh, gaudy? Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. I believe that's the third one. I haven't seen it, though, so I can't vouch for that. But Me I do neither. know the other two are. Um all right. Well, my squandered actor was also Tom Hardy. So why don't we get back to your squandered choice? Okay. So my other squandered person is Riley Keough, who did two Hard projects. Disagree. If I am correct, she, she only did The Lodge, which came out way towards the start of the year. That was a horror film, and she also did The Devil All the Time. That was a Netflix release. Came out maybe towards the middle of the year. I'm just desperate for her to get a character with a little more nuance than uh, either of these roles. I think she's a really talented actress, and I think she's just repeatedly given characters that lack complexity or even just kind of intrigue. These are characters that I just kind of feel a little embarrassed watching, and that really kind of breaks my heart because I think she's a talented actress. Um, I don't know what she has on the horizon. Hopefully it's better stuff. But um, So I, I would have personally pointed to The Earthquake Bird being her like worst mm-hmm. film. Um, out of those ones that you brought up, I think she does a decent job in The Lodge. It's just a bad film. Um, so she's already shot Zola. A24 film oh, yeah, has been right. pushed back because theaters are closed because I think they're expecting big things out of it. Um, but then she's in pre-production on The Guilty and she, mm. I believe, plays Daisy Jones in the um, the TV miniseries Daisy Jones and the Six. So she's got mm. big roles um, on the horizon. I think that these are just, you know, some middle of the road films. I don't see a career tank for her. I just see her being attached to a few wrong projects and the way that everything played out, the release date between the good ones being broader than um, it maybe originally would have been. Um, Cause she probably worked on these projects in a very different way than they're being released. Yeah. The guilty could be interesting because I think Jake Gyllenhaal is in the lead role in that. So I don't know if Riley Keough will be just a voice actress in that. This is the remake, I believe of the, I, I don't remember. I th- it was European film that was mm-hmm. about a, 911 call uh, receiver, and it's just a kind of a one man show. So I'll be curious to see what whether well, she's maybe in was. the room or if she's just someone on the phone. It was a one man show. I don't know if they're adapting it like that. Um, yeah, that the, would sort of defeat the point. The director here is Antoine Fuqua, um, and Jake Gyllenhaal is playing the lead there. Um, it does look like they might just be voice actors, though. But that is a prodigious list of voice actors. I'm just eyeballing that right now, and it's. You got uh, Bill Burr, Ethan Hawke, Paul Dano, Peter Sarsgaard, and uh, that's that's just that's an uber talent um, group there. And then her Daisy Jones and the Six project um, appears to be twelve episodes, and um, it is going to be ran um, on the premise of a rock band in the seventies LA music scene on a quest for worldwide icon status. Um, and it looks like she's the biggest name there, unless you recognize the name Sookie Waterhouse. Yeah, I think, uh, was she in Assassination Nation, maybe, or the Bad Batch? That sounds familiar. Yes. Maybe the Bad yeah, Batch. she was in both of those. Yeah, okay. Okay. Well, time will tell. Uh, who is your other squandered person? 
My squandered individual is a woman by the name of Jessica Chastain. Mm. And she's been in what we call terrible movies. She's been in Ava, which is currently streaming on Netflix as of this recording. She's also been in It Chapter 2, which um, is a divisive film. I gather that people that generally like horror films very much are positive towards it. Um, Me personally, I, I found it horrible. Um, to put it lightly, uh, as well as Dark Phoenix was another Mm. horrible film. I believe that all of those came out here in the last year, 2020. Um, maybe it chapter two was at the end of 2019, but I think it did Mm. play in theaters until 2020. Um, so those are just three terrible projects. Um, she has been on basically a career of bad choices since Molly's Game. I think we can all kind of agree mm-hmm. Molly's Game was her last good film. And this is the woman who, you know, took acting by storm in the Tree of Life. She, uh, I think, redefined, um, you know, what an up-and-coming actress can do in many ways in her film A Most Violent Year mm-hmm. uh, from J.C. Chandor uh, opposite Oscar Isaac. Like, she's she's got the bona fides. She's got the talent. Nothing is missing. It's just bad project after bad project after bad project after bad project. And the rubber's got to meet the road here. She's, she's got to stop making woman walks ahead and go sign up for something that's a little bit more daring where there's some risks being taken, where you're working with an auteur, you know, uh, this is just off the cuff, but a, a director that I'd really like to see her work with, who I think gets something out of actresses that other directors maybe don't always is Ang Lee. Mm. Uh, I just think that his quietness and the way that he lets movement and action speak for themselves, it'd be very interesting to see what she would do with the project from him. No disagreements there. Any idea what's on the horizon for her? A bunch of middle-tier projects that are in pre-production as far as I'm aware. Yeah. I feel like I've heard murmurs about a sequel to A Most Violent Year, her just a random internet chatter about that. I don't know if she would reprise her role or not, or if it's just kind of a, some kind of spiritual sequel to it. But um, I'd be interested in that. I would too. I, I think that JC Chandor is in an interesting place um, after Triple Frontier, where that movie wasn't very good, but I think it performed well for Netflix. So if he can sign on for a deal with them, maybe he can get back to that, that form that he had when he made All is Lost with uh, Robert Redford and, most violent year you know he was on a tear there for a while or he was just making bangers yeah for sure all right let's get on to our number nines all right i have another tie at number nine i promise this is my last tie Are for you sure? my top 10 yes i have one other tie in a little sidebar category um so i have two titles at number nine the first Where's is the money la, la. I know this is hard. I'm going to ask you some questions. They can be really personal. Just answer either never, rarely. Sometimes, or always. 
Eliza Hittman's never, rarely, sometimes, always. It's really intimate procedural about a young girl's um, this little journey from Pennsylvania into New York City to abort an unwanted pregnancy. Um, I think this is one on my list that has already received lots and lots of attention. I think I had it as my wounded soldier at the halfway point because it was planned for its theatrical release right as COVID came out and the theatrical run did not materialize like it should have. But I think this is a really intimate and thoughtfully done drama. And I think, you know, it's already been talked about uh, plenty on its own. And I think it completely stands up on its own um, two feet. But I haven't seen it talked about quite so much just in the context of Eliza Hittman's filmography along with um, It Felt Like Love and Beach Rats. And I think it's a really interesting trilogy that she's made so far looking at kind of American teenage sexuality and the choices that American teens um, make related to um, their bodies and their desires. Um, I think she's a really um, talented filmmaker and someone I think will uh, be around and have a lot more to do. Um, So I just want to interrupt quickly with two anecdotes. Number one, Talia Ryder, fantastic supporting actress in this film. She is um, in Steven Spielberg's production of West Side Story, so we will see her Mm. again very soon. Number two, um, Michael Phillips who you might be familiar with from the Chicago News Tribune, mm-hmm. made a a really fun anecdote that I think you'd get great joy out of. He said that if she could pump out one of these every one or two years, America mm-hmm. would have its answer to the Darden brothers. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. I remember us talking about that when we talked about this movie. There's lots of that kind of handheld, almost neorealism in its aesthetic. It's really, really good stuff. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, and then my other, other number nine, something that it is decidedly lighter in tone, is On the Rocks from Sofia Coppola. Hi, Dad. Hey, kiddo. Oh, my gosh, do you look beautiful. Cliff, how's your mom's hip? Good, thanks. Good. He thinks you're my girlfriend. Bryce. Been busy? Yeah. Dean's traveling with clients all the time, and I'm just the buzzkill waiting to schedule things. Just, I'm so... Duck. So Dean's going away a lot, huh? On business trips? Dad. Raise your hand if that sounds fishy. He's not like you. He's a good guy, a great dad. Sure, it's nature. Males are forced to fight, to dominate, and to impregnate all females. Starring Bill Murray, Rashida Jones, and Marlon Wayans. I get the Wayans brothers mixed up. I think it's Marlon Wayans, right? One of the brothers. I don't yeah, know. I think it's Marlon Wayans. Uh, Rashida Jones plays a, uh, I want to say, 30 or 40-something-year-old uh, woman in New York City. She's she's married with a child. She starts to suspect that her husband's having an affair. Bill Murray plays her kind of playboy-ish father who, together, um, the two of them kind of go on this New York sleuthing adventure where they're trying to figure out whether or not her husband is having an affair. It's much more about the father-daughter relationship than it is about the wife and husband relationship. Um, Probably the uh, lightest thing that Sofia Coppola has done feature film-wise has this really pleasurable screwball flavor to me. I think it's a great New York City movie. Um, I think it's taken some just some familiar comedy drama tropes and just simply doing them better. I think these are really charming performances 
Uh, I had a really good time with this one. On the rocks. It's a fun movie. What is your number nine? My number nine is a cheat in that it's not a film. It is a limited series on HBO Max. This is The Outsider based on the novel from Stephen King, The Outsider. The evidence and the counter evidence. I'm struggling with that. Where are you going with all this? Is that Terry Maitland? 70 miles away. The same day, the same time as Frankie Peterson was murdered. A human being cannot exist in two realities at the same time. I didn't kill that kid, Ralph. When the facts are filled with coincidences, don't dismiss those coincidences. I have no tolerance for the unexplainable. Well then, sir, you'll have no tolerance for me. All she's asking is that we keep an open mind. You keep your mind open. I'm just going to look for facts, evidence, dumb cop shit like that. It has a all-star cast of Jason Bateman, Cynthia Revo, Bill Camp, uh, Ben Mendelsohn. It goes on and on and on. Most importantly is the tone management here. The quality of direction in each and every episode, I think the standout of which is episode one, directed by Jason Bateman, which stars Jason Bateman. Um, He's really come on as a director of the episodic format, um, doing the Ozark project that he assists with writing, producing, and stars in, as well as directing. I think he's become one of the most interesting directors of um, what I would call kind of the short fiction medium. Um, as we move deeper into television, long form storytelling, um, what we're seeing is essentially shorts that tie together and make a bigger story. And I do think that he's one of the most promising voices of visual direction where he understands the climax of the individual episode, not just of the, the project itself, but of how to tell the story of that episode and make it very clear visually, but also exciting to watch. Um, and that's not something that comes easy. I think of Ryan Johnson being the only other person in recent memory that really made a name with what they could do in the episodic format with Breaking Bad. His Breaking Bad episodes, I think, are incredibly memorable. Ozzy Mendias being kind of the biggest one there. And I think that Jason Bateman's getting to that level where he's kind of undeniable in his talent. Um, but outside of that, this film is a project about uh, horror It is an entity that acquires humans and becomes them. And Mm. there is a, uh, what I would call the best performance from Cynthia Riva of 2020 in this project. Mm. Um, She's famous for almost being to an EGOT. That's kind of what everybody's Mm. tracking for her right now. Uh, I can't recommend this project enough. It's a limited run. So when you're done, you're done. But the ride there is great. And we will be talking about one of these supporting actors who I didn't mention here later what service or network is that on or that's hbo max that's hbo max i like it all right on to our top ensembles of the year michael all right we are counting down from three to one from three to one we'll take turns i'm guessing we're gonna have an overlap on at least one of these and i think it'll be our number three it'll definitely be our number three my number three i doubt it because my number three is not going to be on your list. Oh, okay. My number three is uh, Steven Soderbergh's Let Them All Talk. 
Here's to picking up the conversation where we left off. And here's to reconnecting the gang of three who we used to be. <laughs> Did you always talk like that? I'm going to start work on my manuscript. Swim at three, dinner at seven, back to work or bed or both. I'll probably work in bed. I kind of feel like I'm spending time with three almost like Dinosaurs. Starring Meryl Streep, Lucas Hedges, Gemma Chan. Yeah, you have it wrong. That's my number one. Oh, there you go. Candace Bergen, <laughs> Diane Wiest. It's about Meryl Streep's. Um, she plays a writer who wins an award and is taking a cruise to England to accept the award. And she brings along a couple friends, played by Bergen and Wiest, along with her nephew, nephew played by Lucas Hedges, mm-hmm. and her publicist is Gemma Chan. Um, I like the movie. I think there are a couple parts of it that did not work for me, but the the acting is superb. I, it's a very wordy film. I think all these actresses are delightful. Um, let them all talk. Great and ensemble. We'll talk about it again. Um, I'll just do a, a quick recap here. My top ensemble, is, or my number three ensemble is... Something bad's already happened. <laughs> If you can't get yourself to really believe, then you're a danger to everyone else. When I was a kid, I didn't believe in anything. Not God, not the devil. But now I believe there's something else out there. It was worse than I ever imagined. The Outsider? So we can move on quite quickly. What is your number two, Michael? My number two is Mangrove. There may be some who believe that they have been the victim of injustice at the hands of the police. Others who, like parasites, feed on these beliefs and seek to turn them to their own advantage, deliberately creating hate and violence. These defendants are all guilty of the serious criminal offense. Steve McQueen, it's part of his small acts anthology. I think this is the only time across maybe our either of our two lists that any of the small acts films will be coming up. Um, yes, uh, I didn't watch all of them. I made it through Lover's Rock, and I personally found the projects to not speak to me. Um, they're not bad, but they're, they don't really grasp me as something that is... Um, above television in a way. Um, they, There's just something, especially about that. Is that the first one, Mangrove? In which there's mm-hmm. just these super cuts of like violence that just get excessive. I think it's like a four-minute cut where it's just break-in, uh, ransack, break-in, ransack, break-in, ransack, break-in, ransack. Break- and mm. it's just hitting you over the head. Um, I didn't find the storytelling there eloquent. But there, there is quite a cast. I would very much disagree. I think the repetitiousness of the violence is the whole point of the movie and how this this small restaurant in uh, London uh, owned by a black man played by uh, Sean Parks, if I have that right, 
um, is just repeatedly subject to raids by the police for no other reason uh, than the police are trying to shake them down and hoping they'll uh, shut down and, and move to another neighborhood. Right. I think so that's the, the so point. there's a slow play there, which I don't mind. At some point, about two thirds into the film, though, there's literally a supercut montage where mm. it's just that for an extended period of minutes, not seconds, mm. but minutes. And mm. um, I, I don't mind that storytelling at all. But when you hit me over the head with a cudgel, I, mm. I feel like you think that I'm stupid. Um, I, I didn't mm. need to be told what I was already seeing that many times. Uh, I, I like a little bit more nuanced storytelling about that point and that but, but mm. i found it irksome fair enough on the subject of lover's rock even though i'll get back to mangrove here i would actually say that that is like the least like television of most movies i saw this year because it's so free from narrative i think like the thing i just dis- kind of despise most about long-form television in today's world is that it's so much about the carrot always being held out in front of you from episode to episode there's not enough like present tense storytelling um and i think that movie is like entirely about living in the moment that is like a present tense film where it's just a big party that i think i don't think that's like television like at all i can only say that um i've seen better episodes with that type of a theme from dispatches from elsewhere from euphoria from quite a few uh films i I think of uh the chai episode eight uh season three front room in which they're grappling with the fact that the uh sister has been kidnapped and they're unable to find her and there is a sexual predator holding her hostage in his basement and it just plays straightforward um i can think of so many more interesting unique episodes of television this year that aren't holding the carrot out that are just about the moment. Um, the outsider for instance, um, but agree to disagree. Fair enough. But yeah, Mangrove has Letitia Wright, Sean Parks, Malachi Kirby, among others. Uh, yeah, I thought this is a strong cast. Uh, what's your number two top ensemble? My number two is a film that, um, we'll be talking about later and is known to be a troublesome film, especially in this year. Mm. It is Jacques Hughes. Où est le dossier secret sur Dreyfus Désormais, je m'en chargerai personnellement. On intercepte mon courrier. Je suis constamment suivi. Peux-tu prouver tout cela Je voudrais éviter un scandale. C'est déjà un scandale. Tu devrais quitter Paris quelque temps. Et toi J'ai l'honneur de vous présenter, Monsieur Émile Zola. Quelqu'un doit exposer toute l'histoire. En tant qu'officier d'actif, je ne peux rien écrire là-dessus. Vous, non. Mais moi, si. Better known as an officer, and a spy. Um, The film's cast is made up of Louis Garrel, who plays Alfred Dreyfus, who we will be talking about again later, Christophe Mariti, Pierre Poirot, Stephen Godin, Jean Dujardin, who most people might know from The Artist. Um, The list does go on and on. Most names you would not recognize as they are all French um, actors. But this is a film that is uh, really reminiscent to Peterloo for me, where it's just one of these period pieces that feels super period. Um, You never really question that what's reality in front of you on the screen is real. Um, But the fact that Roman Polanski directed it has um, essentially made it blacklisted, from what I can tell in North America, as there is zero distribution for this film. Still none. Mm. It's a 2019 film, by the way. Got gotcha. that's when it premiered. Yes. 
All right. What is your number one? My number one ensemble of the year is... Come. What? Quick. Uh... This is a very real crime here. A theft of taxpayer money. The sum total is 250000 What? Oh, Jesus. $250,000. Everything's fine. You can't jump the gun here. Not when there's this much at stake. We need to know what we're dealing with. Frank. After everything we've worked for. Frank. To get this far. Frank. We have nothing to worry about. Frank's gonna fix this. Bad Education from Corey Finley, which came out back towards the start of the year, streaming now on HBO Max. Uh, it's based on the true story about a uh, public school embezzlement scandal in the Northeast United States. Uh, I forget which state. Uh, it has Hugh Jackman, Allison Janney, uh, Ray Romano, Annalie Ashford, a couple other folks uh, who are escaping me now. And all these folks, I think, are on kind of um, they're in a different position related to this kind of temptation to take some money from the from the oh, school, and I think just to interrupt the hmm. supporting actress who was in Share. Uh, the supporting actress in Share. I don't know. No, if the I supporting remember. actress in Bad Education, the journalist girl. She was uh, in Share, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, I think she was in Blockers. I don't think that was the same actress oh, okay. in Share. Geraldine uh, Visvanathan. There you go. Yeah, I just didn't want you to go through mentioning that film without mentioning her because she's great. She, yeah, she, and yeah, she's. Um, I feel like she's been in quite a bit the last year or so, um, or last couple of years. Um, but yeah, I think everyone in this ensemble is kind of in a different position related to their um, temptation to take some money from the school, and they have a different level of anxiety as this scandal erupts. Uh, I think it only works because of the ensemble. Um, probably would be on my top 10 list. It's not if I made it earlier in the year. It was on my top 10 at the halfway point. Just sharing the love to some other movies at this point. But bad education. There is a great cast there. Um, my number one is a film that we've already talked about and we'll talk about again. It is Steven Soderbergh's 2020 film, Let Them All Talk, on HBO Max. As you mentioned, it has a prolific cast. I will also mention that I don't remember the name of the other author who kind of plays the Clive Cussler type of author mm. um, on the boat. But I thought he was just a hoot in his very brief um, entries. He, he has one particular scene where he walks up to a very animated conversation between Bergen and Vist, And um, he just kind of inserts himself and asks if he can join them in these lounge chairs and just kind of commands the conversation and really brings a new dynamic to the conversation that was happening. Gets a lot more out of the scene. Um, there's, there's just so many little nuggets in this film. Um, as always, I love Soderbergh and I loved this cast. Yeah. I particularly liked Gemma Chan in this, who mm -hmm. I think I only otherwise know from crazy rich Asians. Um, I'm sure she's been in other stuff. Uh, but I, I think she, was, she great. was in some guardians of the galaxy stuff. Um, mm. And she's done, quite a few tv shows i'm forgetting which ones though yeah she was great um all right let's get on to our number eights of the year michael all right my number eight was on my list at the halfway point of the year and it's still here it is bean pole Барышня, добрый вечер. Вы не хотите прогуляться? 
Буду. Он меня вылечит. From the Russian filmmaker Kantemir Blagov, I think he was only 28 or 29 years old when he made this film about two women in post-World War II Leningrad. The film is set just after the city has been absolutely pummeled for like two years, and these two women are trying to sort of rebuild their lives as is everybody in Leningrad at the time. It's quite a harsh and bleak film about the traumas of war and trying to start anew after your your city and body and, and state of mind has just been ravaged by war. Um, I think it's been described as too miserable list for some, but that was not the case for me. I think it is a very harsh film, but absolutely gorgeously directed. It's a really sh kind of shockingly colorful um, film with these really vivid uses of red and green, especially, um, and beautifully acted by the, the two lead actresses. Um, I think, uh, when we talk about like up and coming filmmakers, American critics tend to be very, very focused on American voices. And I, I think it's just shocking to me that this movie was made by someone who's not even 30. I think Balagov, um, oh, wow. has, um, a, uh, good stuff ahead of him. Um, it's uh, available on movie now, but I think it's also available for rental as well. Um, Beanpole. Loved it. All right. My number eight is Waiting for the Barbarians from Chiro Guerra, now streaming on Hulu, as you mentioned. How tiresome your behavior is. You are an obscene torture. We have set procedures. Ready to go. You've been treasonously consulting with the enemy. Get out! I want these people out of here! We will end these troubles. We will put down the enemy. And that will be the end of it. This is, as I mentioned before, Everything that I talked about, it has this great giant moment with the sandstorm. It has um, really eloquent, I think, understated critiques on broader empire and the innocent, neutral hands of evil that are carrying out um, things that they don't quite grapple with or realize. I think this is best illustrated by a very brief scene in which everyone is picking apples and Mark Rylance is sitting at a table with a pen and paper marking down how many apples everyone picks. And then everyone else goes to their tiny little hovels in this city. And he goes into his giant luxurious room in which he's collecting the histories of these people. Um, meanwhile, they're living in some version of poverty in comparison to his lavishness. Um, it, it really just speaks to, you know, taking um, advantage of people in many ways. Um, also separating people and then kind of the, the guilt that one can experience and not quite grapple with. There's a particular interaction that occurs between him and a supporting actress who um, is very kind to him, but is also deeply hurt by him. Um, there's these 
just these great dialogue sequences. It's a very novelesque picture. If you like stories that are, you know, long form novels, I think that this is a film for you. Um, you can try it out for free. It has Johnny Depp, Mark Rylance, Robert Pattinson, and uh, I just can't speak enough high things about it. Yeah, positive or negative, there certainly would have just been more talk about this film, period, had it actually made it to theaters and been released, you know, with a bit more oomph behind it. Yes. Um, I guess one anecdote I will give is that no one really has a name. Everyone's just kind of the girl, the candidate, the uh, the magistrate, that type of a thing. Mm. And the, the woman who plays the girl, quote unquote, is a Mongolian model, TV and film actress named Ghana Bayar Saikon. And mm. she's also been an ex machina, um, a project called Intelligence. And she was in 2016's Ben-Hur and 2017's Wonder Woman. Wow. I was not aware of that. Cool. All right. Let's get to our path back to excellence. Why don't you start us off, Michael? All right. I have one choice for our path back to excellence category. This is where we describe, it could be a filmmaker, actor, actress, anybody, I suppose, right? Who we think? I mean, it could be anybody. Anybody who we think maybe stumbled, but has the potential for greatness once again. There's maybe, there's potential for overlap, I I would think, with our wounded Mm -hmm. soldiers or squandered categories. But in my uh, pick for Path Back to Excellence, I have the filmmaker, Olivier Asayas, who this year put out the film um, Wasp Network. Which uh, went straight to Netflix, has a really sprawling cast, kind of this espionage drama with Penelope Cruz and Anna Diarmas and other big names. But the most, the you know, the most common complaint that almost everyone said was that it was just overstuffed. There was just too much material. Oh, really? This could have been a, a miniseries. Okay. Well, the one that I heard the most was that it was bad. That was the number one critique I heard. That, that potentially too. Um, I think it's a fine movie. I think I think there's just too much material that it's trying to work with and nobody really gets their due. I think the whole cast is great. Um, so his path back to excellence, I think he's already on it. I think he's already planning to make a new miniseries that's going to be based on um, his 1990s film Irma Vep that will be starring Alicia Vikander. Mm. Um, Irma Vep, incredible movie. I could not be more excited for uh, this miniseries uh, that'll be coming out sometime next year, I think, with Alicia Vikander. I think he is already on the road back to excellence. All right. My path back to excellence is the same as my squandered actress. It is Jessica Chastain. And um, since we last spoke, I did do a little bit of research, Michael, and I am not pleased with what I've seen. She is signed on to play the female character in the adaptation of Scenes from a Marriage. That's Mm, right. That is a remake of Scenes from a Marriage with her and Oscar Isaac. Um, I mean, that could potentially be good. The problem is that I love it so much that I disagree with the entire premise of remaking it. Um, But she's also in The Eyes of Tammy Faye playing Tammy Faye Bacher, who uh, that is a film being directed by Michael Showalter. I have not seen a film in years from him that I thought was good, and this does not speak well to me. She's also in The 355, 
which is another film that is, you know, um, trying to do more than it should potentially. It's the follow-up to Dark Phoenix from Simon Kinberg. Mm. So I have absolutely zero interest in it, um, to put it lightly. Um, she still signed on to that project, The Division, um, co-starring with Jake Gyllenhaal. It's been in pre-production since 2016. I see nothing actually happening with that one in the long run, probably. Um, but as far as projects that are in post-production, there is also The Forgiven, directed by John Michael McDonough. And that does have Matt Smith, Rafe Fien, Abby Lee, Caleb Landry Jones, Christopher Abbott, that speaks a little bit more highly. I think that I can be quoted on saying Caleb Landry Jones doesn't pick bad movies. Um, so this is potentially the film that might get me back in her corner, but I am worried that she's just kind of going down this middlesome road in which there might not be a return for her unless she pulls off Keanu Reeves, you know, after 12 years of kind of purgatory. Yeah. The scenes from a marriage. It's a movie or miniseries? I don't remember. It's a limited series. Limited series. Okay. Adaptation. Okay. And it's going to be her and Oscar Isaac. Well, we shall see. All right. Let's get on to our number seven title of the year, Michael. What is your top seven? My number seven is First Cow. No way for poor men to start. You have a cow. First cow in the territory. Ain't a place for cows. No, it's no place for white men either. I sense opportunity here. Good lord! Give me another. I'll give you six ingots for that last one. I taste London in this game. We have to take what we can when the taking is good. Seems dangerous. So is anything worth doing? From Kelly Reichart, this is a period drama set in the early 1800s in Oregon. Uh, John Magaro plays a cook who is traveling with a group of fur trappers when he meets Orion Lee's uh, Chinese immigrant character, and the two of them sort of build a friendship together. They start this biscuit baking business in this tiny little frontier town, and they are managing to make their biscuits by stealing some milk from one of the wealthier uh, residents of their village. Um, it, the period setting obviously recalls something like Meek's Cutoff from Kelly Reichardt, but the theme of male friendship kind of recalls Old Joy, I think it has all the detail that I usually love about a Kelly Reichardt movie, which is partly just about kind of the attention to regional specifics. It's just such a lived-in, um, textured depiction of the Northwest in the early 1800s. There's such a, um attentive uh, depiction of processes, these two guys making their biscuits, and it's obviously super thematically rich with this story about um, business and entrepreneurship in uh, kind of the American foundational moment. Um, really, really great movie. First Cow is my number seven. Good selection. I'm sad that it didn't make it higher in my own lists. My number seven is a small film. Um, most folks have not heard of it. It is called Tenet. Mm. It is the same forwards as backwards. It is a small word. It is Tenet. You want to crash a plane? Well, how big a plane? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
That part is a little dramatic. Directed by Christopher Nolan. This film is available to rent and buy, I believe, anywhere right now. Um, this is one of the few... I think this is the first film since Invisible Life in my list that I got to see in a theater. I believe this is also my last film in my list that I got to see in a theater. Um, it was gorgeous in sprawling IMAX 70 millimeter. Uh, it was cacophonous. It was hard to hear. It was loud. It had a through line. All the things that people have problems with, I didn't really mind because it was a big smash up blockbuster. It um, gave you everything you needed to know about it and didn't give you anything that would be superfluous details, essentially, that would actually define the world. Um, you can either view that as a reduction quality or an addition quality. I think that if you're looking for the meaning of life in film, you can find a problem with this film. And if you're looking to bring joy to your life, then you'll find joy in this film. Mm. It's maybe the only one I would on your list that I would take issue with. I think the plot of this movie, uh, I, I, I think the plot gets in this, in the movie's own way. I think it, What's the plot? I couldn't even tell you. Wrong. Can we it's talk? Kill the bad guy. Yeah, I, I think I need more than the that. The future to talk is about. mad at you. Yeah. Kill yep. the bad guy. It's true. I, yeah, I, I, I wish the plot mechanics weren't so incredibly distracting. Like, I, I agree this is a fun movie, but, like, I just think this, like, is just in desperate need of streamlining. Like, it feels so obvious to say that, like, this is just way, 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 way too knotted for its own good. Why? What is the benefit, I guess, of the excess of plot-related dialogue? Well, there's not really an excess because, in fact, when they're doing most of the exposition, expository dialogue they're literally talking while they're shifting like locations like it's it's a mm. very if you go back and you watch and you actually listen to when we're being given exposition by like john david washington he's going mm. from like location to location saying one sentence mm. um so there's you know filmmaking happening like he's trusting you to um, just kind of follow the ride. Now, if you need more than um, what he gives you, then I, I would question first, why do you need more? Because I think that there's enough there for you to come up with the answers yourself. And number two, I would ask you, did you see the action scenes? Because who cares when you have that opera scene, man? Who cares when you crash a real plane in 70 millimeter? I, I don't know if you got to see it in IMAX, but I can tell you that like in, in a normal theatrical year, these would still be some of my best cinematic moments of just action fun, just like Mission Impossible Fallout was. It's just cool. I, I, I mean, I agree. I think it is fun fun but when it comes to talking about the new great movies of our time like you know is big and loud and fun really enough no i, I mean i think no we but ask the movies, cinematography is incredible the the composition of the score is, mm -hmm. is score is great excellent the yeah. set pieces are formidable the acting is good the only thing that you can really draw a problem with is the screenplay and that's only if you're having problems. And then it's point by point, what are your problems? Well, here's what you're given. Is that good enough for you? It, because at some point, how can you know the future? 
Yeah, I mean, I I guess I just think this movie would have benefited from a very from a simpler story that was less stupid. Like, I think this is the kind of thing that like a ten year old would find interesting. That like stuff moving backwards is cool. That's the movie, and it is cool. But I wish there was a little more, you know, related to just the fundamentals of movie making. You know, theme character that kind of thing i think this oh there's is so just much character co- our main character's name is literally the protagonist i'm confused that's true so <laughs> I, I think it just sort of uses that kind of thing as a as a defense from that argument which i don't think it's a defense fine. i think it's a i think it's just like putting in less salt than more salt it's just a choice that was made and i think that some people uh, you appear to be one of them really are wanting this film to tell its entire story and define things outside of the film itself so that you can understand it better. And for me, it's a very quick reduction of the future's mad. There's a way of sending things backwards in time. And there's a megalomaniac who is going to kill the entire world because he's possessive and insane. And I think that all those things are incredibly familiar in modern storytelling so to elaborate on them would be pointless because they're something that everybody knows. They're just archetypes. This is a film filled with archetypes. And I, I think I described it essentially as Nolan's greatest hits in which he's just reducing everything down and playing, you know, a greatest hits set list. And I had a good time with it. I'm not saying that it changed the, the game of cinema, but I am saying if you're familiar with cinema, you should be able to watch this movie And the only questions you have should be about the scientific notions of the plot, not about who was good, bad, or why he was on the mission. Yeah, yeah. what should anyone care about? I don't know how to answer that question, but, you know, I I think about the line something like, you know, don't think about it, just feel it. Feel what? Like, there's there's no human significance to any of this like it is super fun to watch something so polished and mechanical but like i just don't i cannot like with any uh conviction say that this has anything like meaning to it that i'm Mm. not remotely moved and i think he's you know a very plot driven filmmaker and that's always makes for very entertaining movies and that's why he's as popular as he is i don't think he's a very thoughtful filmmaker i think he's a set piece director (laughs) I I think that's a bigger conversation, but I can tell you that in when I was watching it for the first time in IMAX, that first scene in the opera, I was emotionally affected by the soundscape, what it was occurring, what happens at the train tracks. Like I was being physically affected by that filmmaking. And I think that you can't exclude the value of a project actually affecting your body and how you feel because of its multiple layers. And maybe the defined words are something that's a separate conversation to have a problem with. Um, but I, I think that like I could point at the prestige and, and a few other films where I, I do think that I, I would just disagree with the notion that he's only a set piece director. Yeah. But I don't know if the, the emotional response you're describing is that different from the kind of thing that horror can do when it induces a jump. I think Mm -hmm. there are mechanics, there are levers he knows how to pull to elicit an emotional response. But like as critics, I think we're supposed to ask like, is there thought behind those? Is there, is there, is there other valuable reasons he's pulling these levers to engage us? Or is it merely to, escape that is okay i think okay, escapism but if it is, is good to escape 
why do you get to define that that's not a good value? I Well, if you would let me finish, I would say that escapism is okay. I think that is that that is valuable, um, but I think we still um, should talk about the filmmakers who are putting a little bit more thought and time into why they're pulling certain levers v- versus just to um, engage in a in a thrill. Like I, I don't remember anything really about this movie. That's that. Well, that just might be a personal preference because I remember quite a bit about it. Um, but as far as time, I don't think anybody put more time in their movie than Nolan did at a technical level because he has the future and the past. So mm. true. <laughs> he, he, he put yeah much more time into thinking about it than than I have spent th- thinking about it. That's for sure. Well, no, I was just saying within the film itself, there's more time than any uh, other I film see. this year. Um, all I can say is that once you get into a rabbit hole of the value of something, it becomes pretty easy to reduce things. Um, there's good performances here. There's really sharp filmmaking aspects at all sides. And it sounds like all debate that we would have is associated with the screenplay. Yeah, but when we say like, oh, it's just a screenplay issue, like the screenplay is the foundation of a movie, right? Like, yes, I don't know that we can just say, ah, it's just a screenplay issue. Like, that's kind of a big deal. Well, I, I, no, I'm not reducing. It. I'm just saying that the the rest of the film seems to be something that we can agree on the merit of. True. Oh, um, it, it, it'll be on my list at some point because I, I, you know. I, I think that maybe we should just uh, dedicate a full couple hours to debating the, the veracity of Tenet. Perhaps. That's a separate episode. Why don't we get on with uh, our top three docs of the year? All right. Top documentaries of the year. Any thoughts about documentaries in general? About uh, I think this has been a good year. There's a... Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of documentaries that I liked that um, didn't make it above 10. Um, Painter and the Thief being one of which that I just keep coming back to and, and wishing I could give a little bit more love to. There's documentaries we didn't get to this year just due to um, time constraints that were playing at film festivals. A lot of your entries I haven't seen. I think some of my entries you might not have seen. Um, I think it, it was a good year. I don't know that I have any thoughts. Just thought I would. Give you the opportunity. Oh, thanks. So we'll leave it there. What's your number three? <laughs> my number three is Dick Johnson is dead. The thing I hate most about my memory loss is that it hurts people's feelings. If you know that you woke up in the middle of the night last night, you got fully dressed. Do you remember any of that? No. Yeah. What can we do about that? I don't know. Everybody has to sort of prepare because everybody dies. I love life too much for that. <laughs> <laughs> From right. Kirsten Johnson. It's on Netflix. Uh, this is a very personal documentary um, on Johnson's part about her own father and her father's um, experience with dementia. She, what this documentary essentially is, is her um, kind of confronting the uh, her father's impending death. They stage all these kind of fanciful, whimsical um, mock death scenarios where she's imagining all the kind of outrageous, outlandish ways in which he might die to sort of tackle the fact that he will pass on at some point head on. Um, 
it's a very funny movie, incredibly, incredibly um, sweet movie. This guy, Dick Johnson, is just like the sweetest dude you will ever meet. Um, I just mm-hmm. don't know how anybody could take issue with that. Um, I do think there there is a certain degree of whimsy to it that I don't absolutely love, but I think this is a very um, sweet and personal, just kind of the personal element of this doc is um, very affecting. Dick Johnson is dead. It's a good choice. I like it. My number three documentary on the year is a film called A Thousand Cuts. Mr. President, is it important that people be afraid of you? Fear. Hello and welcome. I'm Maria Ressa. Maria Ressa carries the torch of press freedom in a country held in thrall by a populist president. It started with the drug war. Do not do drugs. Because I will kill you. President Duterte began his administration with the drug list. This is the drug industry of the Philippines. He showed everyone a list. People on that list started dying. I'm telling the Filipino people it's gonna be bloody. We demanded the government be held accountable. Duterte was annoyed by our reporting. You are a fake news outlet. They will be allowed to criticize us. But you go to jail for your crime. We started getting an attack on social media. The government created disinformation networks so people have no idea what the truth is. This is a film about a lot of things, but most uh, definitively put, it might be, this is a film that shows how you can manipulate social media in ways that people are vastly unaware of to control narratives um, that are told. And through those narratives, you can then lobby for political power and take over and then maintain power structures. Um, That might seem reductive, especially at this point right now, but it's a lot deeper than what uh, the storylines in the media right now might boil it down to, because we're not just talking about problems that are being... um, spoken about we're talking about systemic issues with how these platforms are run and these platforms are not um, publicly addressing it and instead they're putting band-aids on it with press releases rather than actually acknowledging that they're putting in place a tactic to take over and experimenting with it in phase a in these east asian countries and south asian countries and then bringing it back to the western um, provinces and I, I can't stress enough the importance of this um, as a documentary, because I think that when you say all those things I just said, it's really easy to have a singular view of um, the current narrative and how that is being reported on. But this goes a lot deeper to why that narrative exists in the first place and what they're actually um, doing as far as power and wealth, um, because it, it's a very concerning topic. But it's... Um, Once again, A Thousand Cuts. It's a fantastic documentary, um, and it should be available, I believe, uh, in March. Yeah, I think I've seen this crop up on a handful of lists. I'm I'm very curious about this one. It's great. What is your number two, Michael? My number two is Garrett Bradley's Time. Success is the best for being it. Gonna show them that they can't treat human life this way. Success is the best revenge. Just hang in there, because when you get them home, they're gonna pay, they're gonna pay, they're gonna pay. 
I knew that if it was going to be, it was going to be totally up to me. Which we talked about on a doc talk at some point in the year. Yeah, it was our film festival doc talk. That's right. And I remember we split on this one a decent amount. And I will say, as time has gone on, I not to put words in your mouth, but I remember your complaint had to do with context and kind of a lack of context. This is a story of a woman whose husband was mm-hmm. in prison for armed robbery and he's been he was sentenced to like something like six to eight decades in prison or something like that. And there was a not a great deal of detail about the incident itself, mm-hmm. the robbery. As time has passed, the more the more and more I think I've come to agree with you on that. Um, just the more I've kind of sat with this doc, the more I wish. I think it might have benefited from that, um, but um, it still has stuck with me as a portrait of this woman's just unwavering loyalty to her husband, um, and as a story of resilience, and um, I-, I think it's an incredibly romantic story in a way, um, to see this woman so, so, so committed to her husband. Um, and so fearful of the of the time he uh, will be or, or or might be um, spending in prison, um, and and the craft I think is is very very strong. Um, I'll leave it at that. Time, which is on Prime Video now. My number two is Midnight Family. <laughs> Directed and written by Luke Lawrenson. When you say written in a documentary, I normally turn my eyes off. But this is a unique case in which I believe the structure that he wrote was essentially just an outline of things to capture, and then he assembled with his editor in order. This is a depiction of the Ochoa family in Mexico City running a private for-profit ambulance, and there's incredible chase scenes, great lighting, really horrific moments, um, really, um, I I guess, morose moments, particularly in which you're seeing the entire family in sleeping bags on the floor. Um, and that is in their apartment where they're living. Um, that's what they can afford to sleep in. And then you're seeing kind of, you know, three different facets of the masculine side of this family. The father who can't really do much, but does enough. The brother who's trying to overcompensate for his father's lack of production, you could say. And then his little brother who's you know, somewhere in the middle of trying to be a grown-up while trying to work for a profitable business. Um, in recent months and days, there's now been um, some interesting news reports where, um, like, L.A. County paramedics have had patients in the ambulance that they've then dropped off at home um, after making the decision themselves to not bring them into the hospital. Um, so this thing that was foreign when we watched it in January... 2020 
with private ambulances where the owner of the ambulance makes a determination of where you go is now very personal and that here in America, there's determinations made about your health by paramedics, not doctors, and whether or not you're allowed to go to the hospital. Um, This documentary is just kind of grown in capacity and quality for me, and um, I can't recommend it enough. That is Luke Lawrenson's Midnight Family. Yeah, it was anxiety-provoking pre-COVID to watch that movie. Now it it would be, like, almost unbearably anxiety-provoking because of how, yeah, relevant it is. Mm -hmm. All right, Michael. What is your number one documentary of the year? My number one is the same one I had at the halfway point of the year. It is called Mat is a Space and Time. Heute hörte ich, dass offiziell im Radio von der Verteidigung Berlins gesprochen wurde. Bitte schreibt mir, wie ihr die beiden schweren Luftangriffe überstanden habt. filmmaker's name is Thomas Heiser. He's a German filmmaker, and this charts about 100 years worth of German history all through uh, Heiser's um, family's written correspondence. It's, It's made up of notes and letters written between members of his family, multiple generations of his family, that he reads in this admittedly kind of monotone voice for almost three hours. It's a long documentary. And he pairs this text with imagery of uh, historically significant sites in Germany that are related to the the content of the correspondence in different ways. It's far and away the most kind of like freeing documentary experience I had all year and and maybe just in film in general um, because of this pairing of of image and text. Um, There's one instance, for example, one that's been quite talked about where he's reading correspondence between family members who are talking about the deportation of Jews that they're expecting. And on screen, you're watching these images of of trains pass while you're reading this long, long list of um, names of of people who are, in fact, ultimately deported. Um, Just, yeah, obviously a very kind of experimental doc and a long one. It requires quite a bit of patience, but I think it's really, really rich and a really kind of stimulating experience because of this um, unique pairing of of image and text. Um, So that is, Hi Matt is a space and time. Um, It's in virtual cinemas still, I believe. I have every intention to get to it. And then I sit down and I look at that runtime and I think that this is in a foreign language. And I proceed to pick a television show and watch it for a longer period than I'm at as a space and time. It's not the easiest one to do on a Monday night after work. It is That's not. for sure. All right. Um, so just recapping, I did forget to mention Midnight Family is now streaming on HBO Max. Um, mm. So if you have a subscription, you can watch it there. And my number one documentary of the year is, like this year, uh, on... Uh, normal not normal um confusing and not really a documentary but also not really a feature film it is my mexican pretzel
directed by Nuria Jimenez Lorang. This is a directorial debut. This is a documentary. This is also not a documentary. It's also a feature film, and the um, title of the film is in and of itself kind of a a sense of the pretzel you'll get twisted in, as pretzel is the German word for pretzel, and Mexican is uh, obviously the word Mexican. However, um, at no point do we really go to Spain. Um, so this is a project that we'll talk about more later um it does not have distribution currently it is a film that we talked about i believe when we talked about time it straddles all sorts of things from a made-up plot um, that's written in text on the bottom of the screen to a silent film to a film with sound effects and climactic moments particularly certain airplane scenes um and then you get kind of this novelist um, feeling in your stomach as as the story goes on and you begin to find yourself aligned with a certain character and she's going through some deep wells of emotion. Um, this is just one of the best journeys I went on in the lens format medium this year and I can't recommend it enough whenever we are available to watch it. I love that movie. Great movie. All right, Michael. What is your number six film on the year? My number six is House of Hummingbird. It's a South Korean film by the filmmaker named Kim. Bora. I think this was maybe slated for a theatrical release, in, at least in some art houses, just before COVID hit, but now it's on uh, VOD services for rental and whatnot. It's a coming-of-age story set in Korea, South Korea in 1994, I uh, believe, if I'm remembering correctly, um, which was sort of a significant year in South Korea, um, if I understand correctly particularly because of this really awful bridge collapse that occurred in this year um, that was quite devastating and shocking. And um, this movie does a really interesting job of kind of setting this coming-of-age story about a middle-aged school girl um, against the kind of backdrop of South Korea during this period of really rapid growth and infrastructure development. Um, It's a pretty 
it's kind of an uncommonly heavy coming of age story. This young girl um, is dealing with everything from neglectful parents to some really intense pressure in school to dealing with just like normal kid stuff, crushes and that kind of thing. Um, the, the tone is quite somber for pretty much the entirety of the movie, but it's very much about coming of age, um, a coming of age that is very much, um, afflicted with hardship. And I think that, I think the tone very much fits the material in that way. Um, and it's very, very, uh, sensitively drawn and atmospheric, wonderful score, wonderful performance by this young, uh, lead actress. I really enjoyed it. That is House of Hummingbird. Where can we watch that? I think it's on iTunes, Amazon, the usual VOD services. I don't think it's streaming quite yet. All right. My number six is another film that is unavailable anywhere. This is Sirdan Golobovich's Otak or Father. <laughs> This is a film that is um, perhaps like your Russian film entry, quite bleak, um, very... uh, just bland to look at, but also gorgeous to look at cinematography wise. Like what you're looking at is despair, sadness, poverty, loneliness, but the cinematography that captures it is spectacularly shot. Um, so there's two different lines there, right? It's the beautiful, how trashy this looks essentially. And this is a story about a man who is separated from his children due to his wife attempting to self-immolate while demanding for his paycheck from the men who fired him and are withholding his pay because the children cannot afford to eat. You then eventually go to their home in which you see there's no running water, electricity, or other things of that nature, and it gets more depressing from there. We have what is a traditional road movie. However, due to the poverty circumstances here, he, rather than being able to drive in a car, commences on a long walk in which he's walking from his uh, kind of neighborhood to the capital to take it up with the leader about whether or not they can take his children from him. This is a deeply emotional film. It is not a cheesy film. Um, Just to bring up some other films that I've watched recently that people are saying are some of the best of the year. Um, Pieces of a Woman in particular has its entire fulcrum of everything of its plot in a courtroom, um, completely undoing its first 30 minutes, which were incredible. This is a film that is personal. It's, it feels very Darden Brothers. It's it's kind of this handheld cinematography. It doesn't lean on these big courtroom cases. There's a couple court scenes, but they're very small, and basically all that happens is he gets crushed. 
And then there's these moments where he is sitting on the ground outside and someone recognizes him from that poor man on the news who's been outside the uh, the Capitol for days or whatever. And people start dropping off food to him. And it, it's just this little slice of life that makes you really appreciative for what you have, but also speaks to, I think, the blind spots that we have in world cinema where this feels not only so foreign, but so close and personal and human that it's, um, it's, I, I want to see more projects like this. And I, I hope that there's more, um, buzz about this film as it does get a release scheduled. This is one I have not yet seen, but it sounds like you could pair this with Beanpole for an ultra bleak double feature. Yes. Yes, indeed. We, per- I, I do have some lighter kind of lighter-ish movies on my list ahead. Actually, that's not really true. Yeah. We got some somber material this year. We do. At least I'm not trying to cap this off with Liberté. That's, yeah, fair. Good, good, good. All right, Michael, that is the end of part one of our best of 2020. We'll be back next week with our five through one, as well as our top three OSTs, our top three um, directorial debuts, classic discoveries, which stars were born, and our best actor and actress lead in supporting. Till then. Run! Go! Get to the chopper! We have to go. I'm coming with you. That was brilliant. You're the best and we love you! That is another one in the can.